Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That it, with your Wednesday Night Wars edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back to talk all things NXT and AEW Dynamite in a week that the Silver King at least believes was a huge bounce back for AEW after a not-so-great episode one week ago. NXT still on the road to its TakeOver event in mid-February, but AEW is promoting Beach Break next week, a special television episode, and I thought they did an absolutely fantastic job getting me and probably all of their viewers and fans excited for that show. We're going to break everything from NXT and AEW down momentarily, but you guys know the drill. We got to take care of some business before we get to that. First and foremost, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Not only do we release every new episode on Twitter, we tweet throughout every major wrestling show. We have pre and post show polls, but it's also the place where you can send us DM slides and tweet questions at us that we will answer on this program. Also head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five star rating and review. Let people know how much you love this show. And if you're someone who has already left one of those five star reviews, I appreciate you. How about go tell some friends and family, tell your doctor, your lawyer, your pediatrician, um, I don't know, your landscaper, anyone you know who likes professional wrestling, let them know about the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. The goal in 2021 is to blow this damn show all the way up. In other words, stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King and the Getting Over wrestling podcast. It has been a long week of shows already for getting over. On Tuesday, we published our WWE Royal Rumble Ultimate Preview with picks and predictions for every match and storyline taking place on the show. Do not forget to listen to that. We had a really great in-depth conversation, particularly about both Royal Rumble matches and how we think those are going to play out. Then on Wednesday this week, the Silver King came back. No big deal. Just sat down one-on-one with the two-time Royal Rumble winner, WWE Hall of Famer, the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels. A full, almost 20-minute interview between the Silver King and HBK. You are definitely going to want to listen to that. And of course, we're talking NXT and AEW now, but we will be back Sunday immediately after the Royal Rumble is off the air for instant analysis of the 2021 WWE Royal Rumble that you are not going to want to miss. Now, as far as today's show goes, we're going to go a little long talking AEW Dynamite, primarily because we'll have an ultimate preview afterward of Beach Break. I mean, I call it the ultimate preview. It's not that ultimate. It's a four-match card and it's a TV show. So there's only so much I can do after I talk about the entire episode of AEW Dynamite. But we are going to save that for the second half of the show. That means we're going to get started with NXT as always for this episode and every episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. There are timestamps in the episode description. So if you only watch NXT or if you only watch AEW, you can skip around to your favorite brand. But I do sincerely hope that all of you are watching both shows because they're generally pretty damn good. And this week, certainly both were good, although 
I said last week NXT had the advantage. This week, AEW came back. It had the advantage in terms of my critical acclaim. But let's get started with NXT, where the main event saw Finn Balor and Kyle O'Reilly go up against Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch. Balor and O'Reilly, they kind of faced off backstage to suss each other out, see where their heads were. The start of the match ended up being strong, considering all four of these guys are great wrestlers. O'Reilly went absolutely wild with the hot tag until Burch went after his jaw. O'Reilly caught Birch flying in a sudden leg lock submission and got the win. But there was a lot of time left in the show. It was only about, I think, 9.57 when that bell rang. So you knew there was going to be some post-match stuff. It certainly raised my eyebrows. Balor and O'Reilly spoke in the ring for a bit. All of a sudden, Pete Dunne showed up out of nowhere, laid out Balor. Undisputed Era was a bit too late for the save, but they did help them clear the ring. Balor then went from standing in front of Undisputed Era to taking a step back and standing beside them, nodding along with the other guys, and then he slid backwards out of the ring. So that created a lot of intrigue, you know, for the Silver King here. Is Balor possibly going to join Undisputed Era and maybe replace Bobby Fish, who not only is older, but is constantly injured and probably, despite me liking him very much, sooner than later needs to move into a managerial role, maybe a performance center coaching role. I don't know what the future holds for Bobby Fish, considering every time they try to do something with him, at some point in that calendar year, he gets hurt. So maybe Balor is going to be that fourth member. That would certainly help Undisputed Era get over even more on the main roster. The problem is Balor is a leader. Adam Cole is clearly a leader. So you have Kyle O'Reilly competing in main events. So how does that kind of all work out? That is difficult to know. But this also may just be a tease. It could lead to a temporary alignment where there becomes dissension between Cole and Balor butting heads and they start a feud. I don't really know, but I'm in for it and I'm definitely intrigued. A bit earlier in the show, Tony Storm hit the ring and called out Io Shirai, saying she does not wait her turn, but rather takes exactly what she wants when she wants it. Storm reminded Shirai that she beat her to win the Mae Young Classic, which is a good callback, and was pissed that Shirai took her out last week from the women's Dusty Rhodes Classic. Shirai came down, said she'd fight her anytime, anywhere, and they started brawling. Once Shy got rid of Storm, Mercedes Martinez attacked the champion from behind and grabbed the title. Storm came back and took it from her, and then Shirai dropkicked both of them. Storm saved Martinez from a moonsault, only to then spear her into the ring apron, drill Shirai thrice, I think, with a hip attack into the corner, and emerge by holding the NXT title in the air. So I was under the impression, and maybe I just got this wrong. Clearly, I did just get this wrong. I was under the impression that Raquel Gonzalez was going to get the title match at NXT TakeOver. And I thought it might be in a triple threat with Martinez. Storm would be the one who gets delayed and held off to be the WrestleMania weekend opponent or the opponent at the ensuing TakeOver. I thought Storm would be the one to beat Io Shirai for the title, in April, but at least to me, it looks like they're saving Gonzalez because Gonzalez is the one who's still alive in the Dusty Rhodes Classic with Dakota Kai. And now you're going to put Storm and Martinez together in a match, presumably, at TakeOver. Does that make it easier for Io Shirai to retain? Possibly. It could also create a situation where Tony Storm wins by pinning Mercedes Martinez and Io Shirai loses the title without getting pinned. It's a little bit complicated. Maybe that's the plan with the idea to hold the Oshirai out a month or two and debut her 
on the Raw or SmackDown after WrestleMania? I don't know. This is interesting, though, because clearly you would think they want to do Io Shirai against Raquel Gonzalez. So maybe this is just a match in between and Io Shirai retains in a triple threat and they move on from there. But man, I really thought Tony Storm was the right person to take the title off of her. Not that Raquel Gonzalez would be a bad choice, but there is a difference in level right now between Tony Storm and Raquel Gonzalez. Let's get into talking about the two Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classics. We'll start with the men. We had Grizzled Young Veterans defeating Kushida and Leon Ruff. The faces showed some strong tandem offense. Ruff hit a cutter off the second turnbuckle for a near fall. Kushida did a great hip toss, cartwheel, missile dropkick combination. GYV then hit a doomsday device, but Kushida kicked out at 2.9. Kushida did a handspring double back elbow to avoid a finisher and make a tag. Ruff hit a tope suicida followed by an Escalera cannonball. However, he missed a senton bomb thanks to GYV interference. They came back, hit Ticket to Mayhem, and got the win. So Kushida and Leon Ruff, they were, they were a lot of fun together. Grizzled Young Veterans absolutely had to win and advance in this match. It was exceedingly entertaining and easily the best thing in the first hour of NXT. Things got better as the show went on. First hour was a little bit rough. Johnny Gargano was incensed during a backstage interview that occurred earlier in the show every time Kushida's name was uttered. Gargano is absolutely crushing it, by the way, in this manic heel type of character. Dexter Loomis was shown stalking the way after that segment. Then we come back to this match. After the match, the way attacked Kushida and Ruff with Gargano hitting one final beat. Loomis appeared behind the barricade and Gargano trash-talked him. So this is, again, another situation that seems weird to me. It seems like we might get a triple threat. I'm not exactly sure why they need to inject Loomis here when Gargano versus Kushida would be an absolutely incredible North American Championship match and should definitely be the match that we get at TakeOver. Loomis completely changes the style of the match. He's way slower. He's still athletic and and talented, but man, he's really gonna drag the energy down in that match if it's a triple threat. And then you're saying, do we really need two triple threat title matches on the same show? So I just don't understand what they're doing. If they're gonna do a Loomis-Austin theory feud, and have Gargano work with Kushida, that's totally fine. But it seems like right now they're setting up Kushida and Ruff versus Gargano in theory for next week, and then Gargano and Kushida you would hope for takeover. But then Loomis is involved. So, you know, I don't mind that NXT is using a bunch of different wrestlers. That's great. But I just hope they don't keep defaulting to triple threat matches. That would be unfortunate. We also had MSK against Drake Maverick and Killian Dane. The contrast of MSK with Dane was a lot of fun because he can hang with them from an athleticism standpoint, despite being a big man. MSK was all over the place with moonsaults and high-risk moves. They eventually beat Maverick with that assisted elevated blockbuster, which again, I said this last week, I like it far better as a setup move than a finisher. These are high-flying guys. They're not even doing a finisher off the top rope. He's literally just running in the ring, flipping over the guy and hitting a blockbuster. So there's a better finisher in their arsenal. I'm sure they can come up with that ain't it, at least for me. Nevertheless, so far, so good with these guys. They're definitely an impressive duo. There's this third guy, Trey Miguel, who's not signed anywhere. I'd love to see him in NXT with them. I think they'd be great as a trio after watching some of their videos from Impact. Now, moving over to 205 Live, because there was a Dusty Rhodes Classic match on that show, we saw Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher defeat Arya Davari 
and Tony Nese. Thatcher and Champa focused on mat wrestling and used their size advantage. The cruiserweights got some offense, including a springboard moonsault and Persian splash for a broken fall. Champa finally hit Willow's bell on Nice for the win as he and Thatcher looked at each other almost with begrudging respect. Their match with Undisputed Era, which is coming up next week, is going to rule so hard. Back on NXT, Undisputed Era said they know they're going to have their hands full with Champa and Thatcher, but they are more experienced as a team and tougher. In an interview later, Champa and Thatcher said respect grew between them in the fight pit and they were not going to pass up the opportunity to team together and win a prestigious event like the Classic. So I love these two teaming. It makes a lot of sense. It's a good storyline. One thing that WWE has done, I say WWE, NXT, kind of the same thing. But one thing NXT has succeeded in is creating multiple different storylines woven throughout the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. So it's an intriguing event. I thought the field was a little bit too large to start. But now that we're past that and we're on to the next round, I'm definitely intrigued to kind of see where it's going to go from here. Moving to the women's Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. We did have two matches this week as well. One of them on NXT. That was Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez defeating Aaliyah and Jesse Kamia. Shockingly, Aaliyah and Kamia got a lot of really good offense on Kai early. Kai, who has full pink hair now, and Gonzalez, they continue to work great together. Gonzalez eventually hit her somehow still unnamed single arm choke bomb finisher for the win. It was a good enough match, but it wasn't anything too special. Over on 205 Live, we saw the women of the way defeat Gigi Dolan and Cora Jade. So Priscilla Kelly, who's Gigi Dolan, and Elena Black, that's Cora Jade, they made their NXT debuts. Dolan was super impressive, and I couldn't shake that she kept reminding me of Paige. And actually, Jade reminded me of Paige a little bit as well, considering I think she's only 19. So it's a similar you know, youth aspect, and, and some of the looks were the same and the moveset. But both very impressive, good wrestlers. Indy Hartwell beat Jade with a pretty cool side slam. No surprise that they won and advanced. Uh, that's why I was stunned that Johnny Gargano and Austin Theory did not win last week. But now it makes sense because they are clearly going to do a North American title feud with Gargano. As I said, the question is, what's that feud going to be? Now we can talk about the rest of the show. Uh, we had Bronson Reed defeat Isaiah Swerve Scott. Reed hit an incredibly ridiculous Tope Suicida and leveled Swerve outside. Back in the ring, he squashed him, hit a senton, and then a Death Valley driver for a near fall. Swerve attacked Reed's shoulder, which he ran into the post outside during a commercial break, pulled him off the top turnbuckle with it, kicked Reed in the side of the head, and hit a 450 splash that against anyone else would have gotten a win, but it only got a 2.9, which shocked him. Swerve then trash-talked Reed, and Reed quickly answered with a lariat and the tsunami for the win. So I get that Swerve is a cocky heel and can eat a loss without suffering much, but I just don't understand his booking. This is a guy who should have been the cruiserweight champion with Santos Escobar dropping the title and moving on to the main card. Instead, he's now dressing like he's in the fifth element. And he's lost like four of his last five matches, all of which were important for one reason or another. He's a great wrestler and a really solid promo. Clearly WWE and NXT know what they have with him, but I just don't understand the booking. He's not being set up for a mid-card or a main event or a tag team title feud. He keeps losing 
to other mid-carders and low-carders. Bronson Reed is getting pushed. That's great. So no harm really in losing to Reed, but he's not beating people in between the Reed losses to allow him to remain established. So for me, it's just it's just confusing booking for a guy who should be getting put over. I mean, you don't have to push him to the moon right away, but he should be getting put over strong. There was a vignette from Imperium saying their unity would restore global domination. Alexander Wolf said his arrival in NXT US was only the beginning, perhaps implying that Walter will be over sooner than later. He's still NXT UK champion, so I'm not sure how they're going to work that. Walter also has made it clear he does not want to be based in the United States, so I don't see him leaving the NXT UK brand, nor do I see Imperium leaving the NXT UK brand. So that just creates a little bit of confusion on what they're going to do with them. Scarlett was playing with her tarot cards again. She continues looking great, and it's an interesting enough vignette as they wait for Balor to finish the feud with Pete Dunne. Uh, Kurt Stallion did a taped interview about traveling down a long road and achieving his freedom, which is the cruiserweight title. It was quite convoluted, really nothing special. Later in the show, Stallion was laid out backstage and he accused Legato del Fantasma of doing it. Escobar denied uh, attacking him to an infuriated William Regal. He said Fantasma had nothing to do with it at all. Regal moved the cruiserweight title match to next week and said they would suffer serious consequences if Stallion is attacked again. As the segment was about to end, Escobar picked up his title and found a tarot card underneath it. He pretended to be worried about it, but shrugged it off. Cross aiming for Escobar is pretty interesting. After Escobar said his name last week when he was running down all of the champions and former champions who had to drop the title. But, I mean, the last thing I want is for Escobar to be squashed, potentially, by carrying cross. They're also both heels. So again, another storyline in NXT, and I'm I feel like I'm repeating myself here, where I have no idea where it's going, and it doesn't seem like it really makes any sense. So just I was frustrated from a logic standpoint with NXT on Wednesday night. And we'll there, we'll wrap up. There's one more. Tyler Rust uh defeated a jobber. The, I, I'm almost positive they never even gave the guy's name. Uh, Malcolm Bivens cut a strong pre-taped promo about Rust getting back on track against an opponent of his own choice. I'm almost positive that they never actually named the opponent, as I said, but then the guy gets in far too much offense. Rust eventually hit an impressive flip cutter, followed by his butterfly submission for the two. Again, two more moves, finishers, and uh, uh, important setup that don't have names. I just don't understand what it is with WWE really when it comes to tag teams and NXT when it comes to superstars you're trying to push having names for their finishers. Karrion Cross came in, all of his names were moved. The straight jacket, the Saito suplex, like everything had a name, fully fledged character. You have Raquel Gonzalez, who you're clearly pushing really strong. She has a pretty dominant finisher that she has used to win multiple big matches and it doesn't have a name. Is this a nitpick? Do you kind of want to tell me? You can yourself too. Okay, maybe I'm nitpicking here. Maybe it is. But it's something I enjoy and appreciate. I, I like when moves get called out. Like Shinsuke Nakamura doing the running knee. It's a good move. Corey Graves screaming Kinshasa while he does it makes it feel special. Uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin hitting the stunner. 
you know, it's a, it's a, it's a kick and a cutter, right? It's not that special of a move. But JR selling that it's a Stone Cold Stunner or selling that the Rock's, you know, adjusted Uranagi's a rock bottom or the people's elbow or the five knuckle shuffle, these things all matter. So I just don't get why NXT holds back when it comes to naming moves for their wrestlers, particularly ones that are getting pushed exceedingly strong. I mean, imagine if none of Finn Balor's moves have finishers and he's the champion. So if you're going to put Raquel Gonzalez in particular into a position of significance, name her freaking finisher. It's not that difficult. So as you can tell, I was definitely frustrated, I think, with NXT on Wednesday night. It was still a good show. The wrestling was solid. It was entertaining. There was nothing wrong with it. NXT this week was not nearly as bad as AEW was last week. But did it take a step down week over week? Absolutely, because I thought last week's show really was a strong episode. And it's almost the opposite as we transition here into AEW Dynamite. I thought last week's episode, I mean, obviously it was their worst of the year. It was a short year so far, but it was their worst in a number of months. They came back this week with a taped episode that I thought was fantastic. There were nitpicks, of course, there's going to be complaints as always, but it was really strong top to bottom with the two best matches of the night were both on AEW and they deserve a lot of credit for that. So John Moxley, we'll kind of start with the, the main event and main storyline, biggest storyline on the show. John Moxley did a promo on the show where he basically calculated all the convoluted math of the elite storyline and how none of them, nor Death Triangle, actually likes him. The promo was fantastic with a lot of tongue-in-cheek comments to set up the six-man tag team match for next week. It's probably the most fun promo Mox has cut so far in AEW, meaning he wasn't 100% serious, thinking, talking about killing people and winning titles. He just was having fun with everything, and it was kind of cool to see that side of him. Really good stuff. Pac later cut a similarly strong but much more serious promo on Kenny Omega and Don Callis, saying that Callis was manipulating everyone ahead of their six-man tag team match next week. So we'll go to the main event where we had the Good Brothers and Young Bucks who build themselves as the Bullet Club up against the Dark Order. They were all wearing, the Bullet Club was all wearing two sweet shirts and Luke Gallows did a beat up John Moxley in the tone of beat up John Cena like AJ Styles used to do. Uh, the teams were getting along backstage even as Kenny Omega stopped to talk to them. But then Don Callis showed up and he had a comically taped up eye and the Bucks lost their cool. As far as the match goes, Gallows and John Silver had a really fun moment with Silver refusing to back down from the much bigger man. It was cool to see the Bucks and Good Brothers working together. Silver had an epic hot tag, taking out all four dudes, three of them outside the ring. Then he hit a deadlift brain buster for a near fall. Rick Knox allowed tags from non-official corners. Uh, It's endless with this guy. Uh, Dark Order hit their fatality finisher, but Carl Anderson broke it up in a near fall. Nick Jackson then landed an Escalera cannonball Twice, one on NXT, we saw it, and one on AEW. Uh, Escalera Cannonball, and then the Bullet Club members hit a triple ring apron powerbomb, followed by a quadruple superkick in the ring. The Good Brothers nailed the Magic Killer on Evil Uno, and then the Bucks hit the Melter Driver on Stu Grayson for the win. They all worked really well together, and throughout the whole match, there was never any dissension between the Bucks and the Good Brothers. Mac Jackson cut a promo after the match about the Battle Royal coming up at beach break and basically indicated if they win, the Young Bucks, 
they will choose the Good Brothers as their opponents. I'll explain that later when we do our Beach Break preview. Uh, they all did the two sweet together. And then right as they were doing that, Ray Phoenix came in, broke it up with a springboard dropkick. He started getting bludgeoned. Moxley then ran in for the save. Phoenix flew out of the ring with a Tope Cone Hero cannonball through the middle ropes and actually landed straddling the ringside barricade. I have never seen anything like that. Omega then ran out with the title only to eat a paradigm shift for Moxley as Dynamite went off the air. This was a really hot match, numerous really interesting promos, and really it ended on a high note, ended the show on a high note with a great promotion for Beach Break next week. So I think they deserve a lot of credit for the Moxley and the Pac promos and this main event match that was way better than I expected. Plus the post-match, we've talked about on this show AEW doing too much end of show chaos, where it really goes over the top and jumps the shark. This was the perfect amount. Couple guys run in, attack, one guy stands tall at the end. So for me, it totally worked. Now, the other, I guess, semi major storyline on AEW right now is this whole deal with Cody, Rhodes, and Shaq. So I asked last week what exactly Cody was going to answer Shaq about. And they literally didn't explain it until minutes before Dynamite when 48-year-old Shaquille O'Neal in a taped segment that aired on AEW's award show and then was replayed on Dynamite challenged Cody to a match in March. So Cody's in the ring with Arn Anderson and Tony Schiavone and he says he wishes... He could book the mixed tag team match with Brandy, Shaq, and Jade Cargill, but real life got in the way with Brandy's pregnancy. Cody then deferred to Arn Anderson, who cut a long, meandering promo and suggested Red Velvet be Cody's partner, which clearly they've been setting up on television. Cody gave the floor to Red Velvet. She made her way to the ring, by the way, who was a million times of a better promo than Jade. It's clear that there's going to be the mixed tag team match between these four at Revolution. Supposedly, now Shaq and Jade have to answer the own challenge that they made. It's very convoluted. The segment was way too long. It was largely weak. Red Velvet on the mic was a nice surprise. But this entire thing, I have no choice, folks. Zero point zero. Maybe it's going to ultimately be good, but if this is your tag team match and both of your experienced wrestlers are on one team, meeting Cody and Red Velvet, and your other team is Shaquille O'Neal, who's 48 and presumably can't move, and a relatively green wrestler in Jade Cargill, I just do not see how this works to any degree. It will be up to them to prove us wrong. They're putting it on a pay-per-view. They're trying to use Shaq to sell buys and and promote AEW. Maybe it works. It doesn't work for me. But something that really did work for me was a singles match right in the meat of the show between Jungle Boy and Dax Hardwood. It really was a great match. There was a dueling pre-taped promo that built up the match before it actually started. 
That was a mwah, chef's kiss. I love stuff like that. Every brand needs to do more of that. You then had Cash Wheeler and Blanchard handcuffed to Luchasaurus at ringside. I thought that was a nice touch. And this was a strong, long match with plenty of setup in the first 10 minutes. It did start slow, but it really picked up toward the finish. Jungle Boy countered a bunch of Harwood's moves until he hit a slingshot sit-down powerbomb off the top rope for a 2.99 count. It was crazy close. Jungle Boy came back with a backstabber and two German suplexes, but Harwood answered with a fake-out DDT. There were a dozen pinning combinations for two counts. Jungle Boy finally locked in the snare trap for the submission win to end a fantastic match. Easily the match of the night across both AEW and NXT. The second best match was the main event I just talked about, but this was the number one match of the night for me. It was also a big singles victory for Jungle Boy in AEW. That gives him a chance to at least be a TNT title holder sooner than later. I would personally love to, three or four months down the line, see Darby Allen versus Jungle Boy be a feud with Jungle Boy actually beating Darby and taking the TNT title. After the match, Blanchard threw baby powder in Luchasaurus's face and hit a slingshot suplex on Jungle Boy, FTR did, I'm sorry, followed by a spike pile driver that Telly helped complete on Luchasaurus to end the segment. FTR then cut the horns off of Luchasaurus's mask, which, why wouldn't you just cut off the whole mask if you know it's rubber? But they only cut the horns off. Marco Stunt and some others came in for the save just as they were about to chop off Jungle Boy's hair. So that's a feud that's still continuing, obviously, and we will probably see more of that. Maybe not next week, but after beach break. Sting and Darby Allen were in some warehouse with a lot of broken windows. Sting took exception to Taz calling them hoodlums, but said Darby actually was one. Darby said Sting was also a hoodlum. And then they each broke a small glass window with their skateboard and their bat. I liked this a bit because it was actually different for a change, but still not much really happened. And Darby always like finishing a vignette or a video package or whatever he's doing by like breaking something small or setting something on fire. It's just really stupid. I I mean, I'm sorry. I hate it. He's such a good wrestler that he's so above doing stuff like that. It's just, it's dumb. And I hope they move past it. But this was a step forward. It was at least different than those two guys standing in a ring, saying nothing, and Team Taz coming out. But of course, we had to see Team Taz anyway. They began to cut a promo later, uh, coming across a merchandise stand. They all got mad that Sting and Darby Allen had stuff being sold, but they didn't, I guess. Brian Cage yeeted a dude into a trailer, uh, just like Kevin Nash did Rey Mysterio back in WCW. That was a pretty funny callback. And then I believe Ricky Starks powerbombed the dude through a table. So it was kind of a cool uh, situation where they just beat up some random dudes. But was it anything special? No, but, you know, not bad. It was definitely an improvement. We had Chris Jericho and MJF face the Varsity Blondes. MJF told Sammy Guevara they had to talk after the match and then insulted Griff Garrison, calling back to their first interaction months ago. I like that touch. The Blondes got in a lot of offense and even got a 2.9 count on Jericho after a great sequence but he caught Brian Pillman flying off the top rope with a Judas effect. That's a weird sentence to say, by the way, for someone of my age, but he caught Brian Pillman uh, with a Judas effect and then hit a lion salt to shut all the haters up from last week. You guys know on this podcast, I actually defended Chris Jericho. I said he slipped. He would come back and hit one strong. That's what he did. 
Jim Ross was then pretty, in my opinion, pathetic, putting over Jericho for hitting the lion salt, a move that this guy has hit thousands of times throughout his entire career. I just thought it was so silly for JR to go to the extent he did to put that over. But putting that aside, I did find the match to be entertaining. Later backstage, MJF found Sammy. Bukovara would not let himself be manipulated and told MJF he was never going to stand down to him. So that continues to pick up. In the opening match of Dynamite, we saw Lance Archer defeat Eddie Kingston. Archer absolutely dominated Kingston. He chokeslammed him over the ropes onto the ring apron. He did a cool ripcord bookend move and then added a tightrope moonsault, which was the most impressive of the three. Archer before the match told Jake Roberts to stay backstage. So Butcher and the Blade attacked Roberts, distracting Archer as Bunny handed Kingston brass knuckles for the win. Butcher and Blade then hit their neckbreaker bomb finisher and Kingston used the knucks again. I like the booking to get Kingston a big win, but it was quite boring as a match for the opener. And the fact that you brought in Lance Archer and he debuted to such, you know, excitement and the guy can't win anything, that's annoying. But I got the booking. It was fine. You know, not really much to complain about, but I I probably would not have made it the opener of the show if it was up to me. Hangman Adam Page defeated Ryan Nemeth. Nemeth, by the way, is Dolph Ziggler's brother. Matt Hardy showed up and started cheering for Page early in the match. Hangman got almost all the offense, but the match did go far too long. Page eventually won with the buckshot lariat. Hardy said he was there to support Page because Page looks lost after being burned by the elite. He said he doesn't want anything from Page. He just needed him to know that he's a good person and deserves to be happy. Hardy then offered Page, who he said was... I guess, dressing on his own, like in a closet or something, to join his dressing room next week. So I did find that to be interesting. I thought this was the best presentation that we've seen of Matt so far. And I'm definitely kind of curious to see, does Paige link up with Hardy? Is he someone who maybe he thinks has his back and then Paige realizes no one has his back and he has to go out on his own again? You know, we'll see. But I I like that they keep doing something with Paige. And I, I am continuously curious what that end result is going to be. Is it going to be Page versus Omega for the title, maybe by the end of the year. Is it going to be that long-term of a storyline? So far, it's already been about a year-long storyline. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I continuously am intrigued by Hangman Adam Page. And then we had Britt Baker defeating Shayna or Shanna. I don't remember which. You know the deal. Women's match came 90 minutes in with a commercial break. Baker hit a great snap-swinging neckbreaker, finished Shanna with the lockjaw submission. She kept attacking Shanna after the match. So Thunder Rosa made the save. I thought this was a perfectly fine segment. I just wish the women's division wasn't so marginalized. But this match earlier in the show, a little bit longer, maybe a second women's match later in the show, and you have some business, right? So I thought Britt Baker did a really good job. Her presentation was solid, and the presentation of AEW Dynamite top to bottom was very strong. Like I said, a huge improvement from last week's show. Set the stage nicely as a go-home episode for AEW Dynamite Beach Break, which will be the special episode next week with four key segments. The first one, the wedding of Penelope and Kip Sabian with Miro there, as well as Charles, the Chuck Taylor. I don't even really have a prediction, right? Like, I just don't know what this is going to be. I don't know how to even break it down. My guess is Orange Cassidy gets involved. Maybe there's a third person that helps them, but... You know, I don't know how I can predict a storyline like this. We know, Let me put it this way. I don't think there's ever been a successful wedding segment in terms of 
people actually getting married on wrestling television, or at least there, I shouldn't say there never has been, there hasn't been in a very long time. So because of that, I can't imagine this being a successful one either. That's my prediction. Now we have Britt Baker against Thunder Rosa, and this being one of three big matches promoted for the show, I'm actually excited about that because I would hope it doesn't just get slotted in that 90 minute spot and get eight minutes. Like I think this has an opportunity to get 15 minutes on beach break next week, considering it's one of three matches being promoted. So very excited about this. You know, it's interesting the direction that this goes. I personally believe you need to have Britt Baker win because look, Thunder Rosa, she came in as the NWA champion. Did she lose the title? Yes, but she is solidified. Baker still really isn't solidified. There's nothing about her where you say, she should be champion or she is a main eventer, even though she's one of the top women in the company. So given this opportunity, even if it's with interference, with Rebel helping her out, whatever the case might be, if it's me booking, I have Britt Baker go over. And ultimately, I think that's what's going to happen. We also have a tag team battle royal with the winner getting a number one contendership. I mentioned this earlier. The Young Bucks will be participating as the champions. If they win, they can choose their opponent any other team that wins, they become the number one contenders. It's really tough to make a prediction here because there's just so many tag teams and it doesn't, it's not naturally progressing in a way where it looks like there's someone head and shoulders who needs to be the next challengers. So I, I just, it's something I can't make a prediction on. Unfortunately, I can tell you what I don't think is going to happen. And what I don't think happens is the Young Bucks winning and choosing the Good Brothers. I think that manifests itself in another way. It would be way too oblivious of AEW, and they don't make these kinds of mistakes, to totally give away the end of the match a week early. For the Bucks to say, if we win, we're choosing you, and then have them win and choose the Good Brothers, it's just too obvious. So I just don't think they're going to go in that direction. I think Tony Khan's a better booker than that. As far as who's going to win, I don't know. Who would I love to see win? Santana and Ortiz. You guys know I want that. I think these guys should be completely pushed as a tag team. They're totally marginalized on the show right now. Um, and that that's who I would pick if I was booking it. But I don't know who AEW is going to go with. And then the main event of the show, Kenny Omega and the Good Brothers against John Moxley, Pac, and Ray Phoenix. I think given the fact that this is a six-man tag team match, it does create the opportunity for Omega to lose without being damaged. You move over and look at the other team, Moxley's not going to take the fall. It would be very doubtful that Ray Phoenix takes another fall after just getting beat by Omega. So you look at who can take the fall in the match, and it's probably Carl Anderson, Luke Gallows, I guess his name's Doc Gallows now, Doc Gallows, or Pac. Those are your three options. And I just ultimately keep coming back to the idea of one of the Good Brothers taking the fall, the faces getting a win, and John Moxley being able to hold something over Kenny Omega with his goal of getting a future title match. If the heels win again, I don't really know what you're, how you're progressing the storyline within AEW. Omega's gonna already have beaten Phoenix, already have beaten Pentagon, already have beaten Moxley. Yeah, Pac is there. Maybe you do uh, Omega... Pac, you run that back, which would be a great match. But I just think the more likely scenario is the faces winning and them then continuing this storyline somehow 
through revolution into, you know, the late spring and early summer. But look, I can see it going either way. I think that's what's often so good about AEW is you think you can always predict everything, but they do give you some swerves and surprises here and there. I do think most of the world title matches have been easily predictable. Jericho, all those wins. Uh, Moxley, all of his wins and retentions, although there were certainly fewer. And then Omega winning on a very heavily promoted edition of Dynamite. I, I just don't see Moxley losing again, uh, even if it's in a six-man tag team match. So I will pick the faces to win that match. So as I said, a strong edition of AEW Dynamite. I'm certainly quite excited for Beach Break next week. I'm also excited for NXT. I want to see if they can bounce back with a better show next week, especially knowing that they're going head-to-head with Beach Break. The Cruiserweight title will be on the line. That's one thing we know is going to happen. That certainly doesn't compare star power-wise to what Beach Break is doing. But NXT is you know, definitely going to be, I would expect, putting their best foot forward. It is also, I think, going to be two weeks out if my calendar is correct, my internal calendar in my head. Yes, it'll be two weeks out from the NXT TakeOver on Valentine's Day that, by the way, is still unnamed at this time. So we don't exactly know what that's going to be. But with two weeks left to build that pay-per-view, they're going to need to start announcing matches. I believe those are going to start getting solidified next week with the following week of NXT being the go-home show. So I appreciate all of you listening to me break down NXT and AEW Dynamite on this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. A few reminders, episodes already published this week include our WWE Royal Rumble Ultimate Preview that you absolutely need to listen to before the pay-per-view on Sunday. If you're not a huge WWE viewer, you at least need to listen to my one-on-one interview with the heartbreak kid, Sean Michaels, which is also on our feed from just one day before this episode got published. And do not forget to return to us Sunday night as soon as the Royal Rumble is off the air for instant analysis of the 2021 WWE Royal Rumble. That's how we do it on this damn show. We're all about the meat. How about next week, you and I meet up one-on-one for a steak dinner? Not just next week, Sunday night, we're meeting up one-on-one for a steak dinner. That is the instant analysis of the Royal Rumble. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and head on over to Apple Podcasts to drop those five-star ratings and reviews. With that said, the Silver King is out, and that means there's one more person left to say goodbye to you. Thank you all for listening. I will see you Sunday night. Bye for now.